Welcome to the Vineyard Church Cardiff podcast. It is great to have you. This week, Alice is kicking off our series, The Coming King, as we carry on through the season of Advent in preparation for Christmas. So sit back, relax and enjoy. Hello. Can you believe it? Advent has begun. We are in December. Maybe, like me, you're just surprised. Another year has rolled around already. Do you know what? My kids woke up super early this week on Wednesday, 1st of December. They were up very, very early. My eldest woke my youngest with a shout of, yes, we get to open the advent calendar. They were full of Christmas joy, which I must say, I did not have the same level of Christmas joy at being woken up at six o'clock in the morning. (laughs) But there we go. Advent is here. And you know, I've heard it said that advent is a time of amplification. It's a time of increase. You know, for some of us, Christmas is full of more joy. It's a season of joy as we get to see family and friends. We get to do some of the traditions that we like to do at this time of year. It's an increase in joy. But it's also an amplification in other ways. You know, for those of us who live busy lives, we get busier. For those of us that already have lots of stuff, we get more stuff. For those of us that eat a lot, we get to eat even more. You're like, yes, Alice, you are now describing my perfect Christmas. (laughs) But, you know, this is also true in a different way. You know, for those of us who are lonely, Advent and Christmas can just be a time of amplified loneliness. For those of us who are in a season of grief, who are grieving, and this can be a time of increased grief as we think about those who are missing. For those financially struggling, this can be a season of increased debt. For those already feeling anxious, the amplification of Advent can just feel overwhelming and so on. Advent is a time of amplification. And whatever you're at this season, you know, of course, in different seasons of our lives, um, Christmas feels different, doesn't it? Each year, wherever you're at this year, in this season of Advent, my hope, my prayer is that you would encounter Jesus, the coming King, deeply this Advent in a way that changes you from the inside out. Because whilst Advent is a time of amplification, it is also a time of anticipation, of looking forward. The word Advent is from the Latin word Adventus, which literally means coming, where we think about Jesus coming into the world as a baby, don't we? It's the time when the church enters back into the ancient story over 2,000 years ago on a hillside in Bethlehem where angels appeared to a bunch of scared shepherds and said, do you know what? A king has been born today. When Mary and Joseph, far from home, find themselves in unfamiliar surroundings in this stable, cuddling, huddled around, cuddling this baby boy, looking at him, wondering about all that was to come his way. When three wise men or more, who knows, come in from the east, they've headed, travelled all that way, following this star, just to get a glimpse of this baby. And when they see him, they fall to their knees and they worship him because they are aware that they are in the presence of someone greater than them. Advent is a call to enter into this story. And as such, We also join in with the anticipation of the Old Testament prophets of the people of Israel who had been waiting and waiting for this moment to arrive. This moment when the word would become flesh and dwell among us. The coming king had arrived in history. He has come. But as I said, Advent is a call to also look forward. This is a season where we look backward and as well as and and also look forward to anticipate, to look forward to the future moment when the king will come again. That is the heart cry of Advent. Lord, come again. And the Bible tells us that he will come again and make all things right. 
when the light will overcome the darkness once and for all. The King will come again. And so at Advent, we draw hope, joy and peace from the truth that the King has come and that the King will come again. But we also get to draw hope, joy and peace from the reality that he wants to break in to your very moment now, that he wants to meet you in your present moment, your present circumstances, whatever this Advent season holds for you. He is with us and he is present with us now. Are you expectant that the Lord wants to meet with you during this season? Of Advent, you know, during this season of amplification of everything ramping up, is there space in your life to encounter Jesus, to encounter the coming King? The King has come, the King will come, and the King does come today. And so, we're going to be thinking about this theme, the coming King, over the next few weeks as we journey through Advent towards Christmas. And I want to kick us off today by looking in the Old Testament at the book of Micah, chapter 5, which might be a bit of a surprise to you. We're going to be Micah 5, verses 2 to 5. Just a little bit of context to ease us in before we start. So Micah, he was an Old Testament prophet, so he's writing before Jesus was born, and he's writing in what was a pretty dark time for the people of God. They were in a bad way, they were worshipping other gods, they were not keeping the law that he had given them, you know, the law that was to set them apart and keep them holy, they were violating it in every way, including oppressing the poor um, and perpetrating injustice. This was also a time in the nation's history of warfare. The north and the south of the country had divided into two kingdoms and in the process a lot of blood had been shed. And Micah has also then just witnessed the brutal invasion of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians. And so God speaking through Micah here in the book of Micah speaks to his people of the southern kingdom of Judah to warn that invasion is coming their way also. And there's this pattern through his writing of warning on one hand and then of future hope on the other, you know, of anticipation that all was not lost. That whilst foreign kings were set to invade and destroy, yes, but also, yes, that a future king was coming who would restore all things. So let's jump in. We're going to start in verse 2, chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son, and the rest of the brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. A great verses, aren't they? I just want to spend a bit of time working through them slowly because there's actually quite a lot in there. I just want to unpick and get as much as we can from these special verses in Micah. So he starts, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So, Mar- so Micah, as he speaks into these dark and troubled times surrounding the people of God, he suddenly just kind of drops in a name of what was kind of seemingly a small, insignificant town, Bethlehem, in the region of Ephrathah, Judah, about five miles south of Jerusalem. And he prophesies that from this place, the king um, would be born, who would come to rule and reign over Israel. Now, if you were Jewish in reading this, you would understand straight away that Bethlehem is significant because it is where Israel's greatest king, King David, was from. It's kind of what it was famous for, you know? You know, maybe when you think about your hometown, you're like, you just know, what are some of the things that it's famous for? I grew up in a small town called Godalming in the south of England. It's a beautiful place. 
And it was famous um, for being the uh, hometown of a guy called Jack Phillips, who was the guy that sent the SOS signal um, on the Titanic when it hit, first hit the iceberg and he then went down with the Titanic. It was, Godalming was the first town in the world to supply electricity into people's homes. Oh yes, great claim to fame, go Godalming. And it was also, this is less probably interesting, it was also reportedly home to a lady called, well she was, she was from Godalming, this lady called Mary Tufts, who reportedly gave birth to rabbits. But let's be honest, I'm fairly sure she just made that up. But that, that's on Godalming's claim to fame. And Bethlehem's claim to fame was, um, it was famous for being the birthplace of King David, Israel's greatest king. And God had promised David in 1 Samuel chapter 7. That is a key chapter in the Old Testament. If you want to kind of geek out in the Old Testament, go and look at that this week. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Um, God promises David one of his descendants would reign forever. Not just over Israel, but actually over the whole world. That from David, a king would come whose kingdom would last forever. This new king would be from David's lineage. He'd be one of his ancestors and, and kind of be like a new David, as it were. Because of this verse here in Micah 5 verse 2, um, it was generally anticipated, it kind of made sense to Jewish scholars, therefore, that when the promised Messiah, when the king did arrive, he would therefore be from Bethlehem in the same birthplace as King David. And we see this playing out in the New Testament. We see there's the moment where the wise men, they rock up, they've travelled from afar, they follow this star that they've prophetically kind of understood to be a sign um, that the Messiah, that the coming king had arrived. And they come before Herod and they have this discussion about this. Herod, obviously, he's not too pleased to hear about this. But they quote, the kings quote um, Micah 5 verse 2 to Herod in order to explain how it is they know that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's Matthew chapter two, if you want to look it up. Um, in preparing for this, I looked in John seven this week, which was a chapter I'd read before, but never really kind of really sat in before and kind of taken in in all its fullness. But this is an amazing chapter where Jesus, he's now a grown up, you know, he's doing his ministry. Um, and there's this moment where some of the religious people of the day, they are kind of disturbed by Jesus's popularity. You know, he's ruffled their feathers. They are disturbed by the power and the authority that he has in his teaching. And uh, they are keen to put a stop to suggestions, to the rumours that were circulating, that Jesus of Nazareth was this anticipated king, the Messiah. And these critics make the following argument. They're like, but wait a minute, this guy, he's from Nazareth. He's a Galilean. I think you'll find, if you look in your Old Testament, and if you look in Micah 5 verse 2, um, that Christ was supposed to be born, the Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So it can't be him. Ironically, of course, these critics of Jesus, they don't realise that he had indeed been born in Bethlehem, albeit he had then grown up in Nazareth. And therefore, they're not really making the point that they think they're making. That's what I often find myself saying to my kids when they come to me and they're like, Mummy, I want another Kit Kat. <laughs> Please, can we have another Kit Kat? And I'll be like, darling... You've already had a few treats today. They're like, no, we've not. We've only had two treats today. And I'm like, yes. You're not making the point that you think you're making there. <laughs> you're actually making it worse for yourself. Little do these critics realise they're doing just that. They're making it worse for themselves that Jesus of Nazareth had indeed been born in Bethlehem. And so they're inadvertently making a stronger case that Jesus was indeed this anticipated Messiah, the coming king. Now, if you recall, in the Christmas story, Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at the time um, when Jesus was born, he was kind of he viewed himself as half divine. He called himself the son of God and said he was the savior of the world. <laughs> yep. What a big head. And he orders a census across his empire. 
and he does this basically for taxation purposes to make himself more rich and more powerful. So Mary and Joseph, if you knew, you'll know the story, I'm sure they have to go back to Bethlehem from Nazareth for the census because that's where Joseph's family is originally from and that's kind of how you used to do a census if you didn't have the internet. So it would seem, therefore, that it is on Caesar's agenda, that it is for political reasons that Joseph and Mary find themselves in Bethlehem, not Nazareth, on the night that Jesus is born. But of course we see that it is God working um, through this to achieve his purposes, not Caesar's. Jesus is then born in Bethlehem, which Micah 5 verse 2 um, prophesies as the birthplace of King David was going to be the place the coming king would be born. Jesus, the coming king, the only true saviour of the world, the only son of God, not Caesar, was coming into the world. And this was going to be on God's timing and purposes, not Caesar. So there we go. And so it was. And so it was the case that Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem whose origins would trace back to David through the family of King David, but would go back even further, verse 2 tells us, that would be even more ancient. You know, this coming king would be God himself, who controls all human history and who is greater than any king, earthly king, could ever be. Let's jump into verse 3 in Micah 5. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So what Micah is saying here um, in this prophecy, saying that until this coming king breaks into human history, Israel will no longer be a great nation with a king. And this is because of their sin and rebellion. You know, instead, Israel is going to find itself subject to its enemies. You know, and as we know, empire after empire is going to rise up and rule over it. But when this king does arrive, you know, when she who is in labour bears a son, you know, here's Mary, she's laboured in a stable far from home with no pain relief, with no family, female family members around to support her through the birth. I mean, can you just imagine it? Um, Mary's laboured, Jesus has been born in a stable in Bethlehem, and Micah's saying when he arrives in Bethlehem, he is going to establish a kingdom that is for all people, not just the people of Israel. You know, that through Jesus, God is going to establish what was always his purpose for the people of Israel, but that they never managed to achieve. Namely this, that all nations would know that the ne- they would know the name of the Lord and be free to worship him. And then we get to verse four here in chapter five. Now, remember here that Micah is writing, um, kind of peering forward some kind of 700 years um, as he anticipates the coming king. And he does so with the backdrop of faithless and corrupt leaders and rulers and kings who were leading the people of Israel. A different Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, um, in Ezekiel chapter 34, he speaks out against these leaders that are, co- that are leading the people of Israel astray. And he calls these leaders bad shepherds. Let's just have a look. Ezekiel 34 verse 2 to 3. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals. But you do not take care of the flock. You know, instead of protecting and leading God's people, you have neglected and worse, you have exploited them, Ezekiel says. Now, it is into this context that Micah is speaking and prophesying, this context of these, this backdrop of these bad and corrupt leaders. And in contrast here, he talks about the coming king and what kind of shepherd this coming king is going to be. Verse four, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be our peace. 
I just love this verse. You know, it has spoken so powerful, powerfully to me over the last few weeks. Why not take this verse and meditate over it over the next coming few weeks of Advent? You know, write it out, take a screenshot of it in your Bibles and have it as a screensaver on your phone or something like that. Have it before you and behind you over the next few weeks. You know, every time you see a Christmas card with a picture of like baby Jesus in it or something like that, um, come back to this verse and let this verse give you faith for who Jesus was, for who he is, and all um, that he still is. It's beautiful, isn't it? The coming king it talks about, you know, it uses words like majesty, strength, greatness. This coming king is to be our shepherd. He is our shepherd king. Unlike these faithless and corrupt leaders in Micah's context, this king, King Jesus, will shepherd his flock well. He will tend and care for them. He will protect them. Now, this verse, of course, has echoes. It might make you think of Psalm 23, a famous psalm written by none other than King David of Bethlehem. You know, David was a shepherd who would then become king. And so Micah here is drawing another parallel between King David and King Jesus here. In Psalm 23, the shepherd who would become king, King David, he pours himself out in worship to the Lord, to his shepherd king. These are the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, these are amongst the most famous words of the Bible, aren't they? And as such, they can kind of feel a bit twee after a time. They kind of make me think of, you know, like kind of grandma's cross-stitch Bible verse territory. <laughs> Not that I've got anything against cross-stitch, but you know what I mean. But just listen to how powerfully these verses talk about the shepherd and all um, that he promises to do and be for us. These are some of the promises you find in these verses in Psalm 23. He will give me rest. He leads me. He restores me. He guides me. He is with me. Who here needs to know that deep rest and restoration that Jesus, the shepherd, bring, uh, the shepherd king offers? Many of us feel deeply tired and weary. Only Jesus can restore your soul and give you the deep rest that you need. Who here needs the leadership and guidance of the shepherd king in these uncertain times? Who needs that reassurance that he is with us? That even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, Christmas, this Advent season, is the story that God is with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is with us. And I think that we deeply need to hear these reassurances to know him as our shepherd king. You know, it's been a tough year, another one, hasn't it? You know, as I, write, as I, as I um, prepared this talk, I was just aware that there was this cloud now hanging over this season of Advent. You know, a new coronavirus variant, a new sense of the unknown, a growing sense of dread about all that that might mean. And I believe that this message that the coming king is our shepherd is one that needs to be heard. The reassurance that he is with us has the power to speak to the fear and anxiety that many of us are feeling right now. That is endemic in our society and culture at large. To know that we are mere sheep, you know, that we don't have to have this all figured out. But instead to know the reassurance that he is our shepherd. That he leads us, he restores us, he guides us. That he is with us. The coming king is our shepherd. He is with you. 
and he knows you. In John 10, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He knows you. He is for you. You know, shepherds in ancient uh, times, they spent a lot of time with their sheep. They were nomadic people and they would go, they would lead their sheep from pasture to pasture around um, their local area. They would sleep out with them under the stars. They would be able to lead them. Just the sound of their voice would be enough for the sheep to know to follow them. That's how well they knew the sheep. Uh, that the, uh, the sheep knew the, knew, knew the shepherd and the shepherds knew the sheep. I read this uh, true story this week about a pastor who was on a train with a friend who happened to be a shepherd. And as they were coming uh, near to where they lived, they were passing some fields that had a whole load of sheep in it. And um, the pastor was really, really surprised when the shepherd kind of points out, looks in the field and says, oh yeah, oh yeah, I can see three of my lambs in that field from the train window. <laughs> and the pastor was like, how did you know that? How can you possibly do that? And the shepherd's like, I just know my sheep well. You know, apparently that's not even that weird to be able to do in the shepherding world. Because shepherds know their sheep. It makes me think of a, of a different story in my life um, many years ago where Matt and I had ordered this table and the guy came to deliver it. He was the carpenter that had made the table and he came in and he was just putting the legs on it and getting it set up in our dining room. And, uh, you know, making a conversation. I was chatting to him as I do. And um, there was a bookcase in our dining room and he says, oh, where did you get that bookcase from? And I was like, mm, don't know. Well, it was a hand-me-down from our in-laws, but don't know. And he was like, I made that bookcase. And of course, my instinct, slightly awkward moment of, you clearly didn't. <laughs> it was a hand-me-down from my in-laws. They'd had it for a long time. Um, and, and they hadn't bought it in Wales, as far as I knew. So I thought highly unlikely that this guy had actually made the bookcase. It was a little bit awkward. I'd since Annie Sloaned it, you know, I'd put chalk paint on it. It now looked quite different. Clearly, he was making a slightly embarrassing mistake. But of course, I didn't say that to him. No, I was like, oh, really? Interesting. Clearly, I wasn't that subtle because he picked up on my inner scepticism and said, no, really? Look on the back and there's like a few numbers on the back, a couple of numbers on the back that identifies the carpentry workshop that I was working in that made those bookcases. And you'll see there on the back, oh, fine, kind of humouring him, ready for the awkward moment of being like, no, see, it's not. It's from Ikea. No. <laughs> anyway, I pulled it round. Sure enough, those three numbers that he said would be on the back were on the back. The carpenter knew his handiwork when he saw it. Jesus knows you and is for you. He knows his handiwork. He knows you and his invitation is for you to know him likewise. Now we talk a lot about discipleship in this church. We've got this whole framework around it called Live Like Jesus because we want to be a church that takes discipleship to Jesus seriously. And here using this metaphor of sheep and shepherds, we can understand that discipleship is our increasing, is our ever increasing ability to know the master's voice, to know the shepherd's voice and to follow his ways for our life. The shepherd king is with you, he knows you, and lastly, he fights for you. Now here's what I want you to notice about Psalm 23. I did not know this until I did this research for this talk, but if you look in Psalm 23, the shepherd has a rod and a staff. Now maybe, like me, you just thought they were one and the same thing, here you go, I've got two of these things now to help me look after these sheep, but they are not, they are entirely different things. Now, a shepherd's staff was used, as you might think, it's kind of got a hook on the end, a crook on the crook or a hook on the end, and uh, you'd use it to kind of help guide the sheep. You know, sheep, got to be honest, not the most intelligent animals in the world, um, and they are likely that if one goes off the edge of a ravine, all of them will go off. So you used to have this hook just trying to hook them back out of the way and to kind of guide them onto safer paths. So that was the shepherd's staff. Great. Yep, we're all familiar with that probably. But a rod was something entirely different. 
A rod, the shepherd's rod, was thick and it was heavy. It was not used for the sheep at all. A shepherd's rod was used to beat off any wolves. Anything that might threaten the sheep. You see, shepherds weren't these kind of wimpy guys that just cuddled sheep all day long. No, shepherds were tough guys. Back to King David again, you know, he was the, the king that was a shepherd. And when he was a shepherd, you may know the story, when he was younger, he volunteers to fight Goliath. You know, this big, scary giant Goliath. And David puts himself forward and he says, yeah, I'll take on Goliath. And as he's doing so, as he puts himself forward, he points out that he is very well qualified to take on Goliath because he is a shepherd. <laughs> and I imagine the people that heard that thought, yes, David, not making the point that you think you're making there. But he goes on to explain that being a shepherd qualifies him because as a shepherd, he has had to kill lions and bears. He's had to rescue sheep from their mouths. He was a tough guy. Shepherds were tough guys. Jesus is tough. He is our shepherd and our protector. His love is fierce for you. He fights for you. Let's go back into his words in John 10. This is what Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus, the coming king, he laid down his life for us, his sheep, to protect us from the wolves. His death on the cross defeated the work of the enemy. It was a rod to the wolves. His death was to bring us life. The shepherd king is with you. He knows you. He fights for you. And my prayer is that that would be your peace this Advent, wherever you find yourself in this season. You know, Micah 5, verse 5, the beginning bit says, He will be your peace. Not just that he brings peace, but that he will be your peace, so that your soul can find peace. You can dwell peacefully, verse 4 says. You can live securely. You can dwell peacefully because of that reassurance that the coming king is your shepherd, that he knows you that he is with you and that he fights for you. You can dwell peacefully because the one who dwelt among us is our peace. And so over this season of Advent, my hope and my prayer is that you would encounter the shepherd king, the king who came into the world at Christmas, who will come again and make all things right at the end of the world and who wants to come into your life today. Let me finish with a verse from Revelation 7, 17, a glimpse of all that is to come and the Lamb Jesus on his throne. It says this, for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen.